Well, good morning again. Uh, glad to be back uh, among uh, the great folks at Rocky Mount Baptist. So let me just thank you for extending a second invitation. I, I want to address the, the reasons my family and I came. Uh, people ask us in May if we were joining the church. Uh, Gary Yates is probably my best friend in the seminary, and uh, my family had never heard him preach. So we drove here to Rocky Mount to hear him preach. Uh, the last month, the month of June, I spent uh, a lot of time preaching in other churches, and I just want to tell you that uh, the preaching in other churches is a revival for my soul, and here's why. You people are so kind and generous and loving. I can't tell you how many strangers have hugged my neck in the last few weeks and welcomed me, and I thought, I'm just going to join that church too. So um, I guess... Uh, Quite frankly, I feel like I'm a member of just about every church I've attended, so, uh, but always Rocky Mount has a special place in our heart. Uh, my wife even commented on the drive over, if it wasn't an hour drive, we'd join today. Um, I understand that you have an interim pastor coming, is that correct? Did I understand correctly? A guy by the name of David Wheeler? I, I happen to know him, and I just want to say, are you sure? Uh, I love David. His wife is the best part of that deal, uh, but I do love David. He's like a chihuahua on caffeine, so be aware. Um, keeping up with David, yeah, trust me. Yeah, you don't, I don't know what you're getting into here. Uh, I might have to come back out just to see what that's like, to be quite honest with you. So if you see me again in the next few months, don't be, don't be surprised. Uh, we might come back out just to see what David looks like when he's up here doing this. Um, as I thought about this topic today, this is Independence Day weekend. We're celebrating uh, America's birthday tomorrow, uh, celebrating our freedom from, uh, from taxation, which is ironic that we're now paying more taxes than uh, they ever paid before, but we'll not get political. This is church after all. Uh, <clears throat> we're celebrating our freedom from Britain, freedom from tyranny, freedom from, the from, from these people who tried to steal our opportunities to be the folks we wanted to be. People came to this country years ago to pursue freedom, not just uh, academic freedom, not just personal freedom, but religious freedom. Um, I don't know if you know what it takes to get on a small wooden boat in England with three masts and a couple of sails with a, with a few dozen other people and sail across an ocean over a period of several months, not days, months, not being sure where you're going to land and end up in a country where all you have is what you brought with you. And, 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 if you, and ladies and gentlemen, if you're like me, uh, when we go on trips, if we go on a two-day trip, we pack for seven days, right? Do you like that? You know, so if one set of clothes will do, seven do better, just to be, you know, you might spill something. Uh, the, the people who came over here didn't have that, that luxury. They came here and they lived with what they had. In 1776, when our country declared its freedom from Britain, when it, the Declaration of Independence was ratified, signed into law, and made the founding document, our founding fathers, those men like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Ben Franklin, these men prepared themselves for the onslaught that was coming. They said things like, we pledge our honor, our lives, our sacred trust, and all that we have towards this course of action. They were prepared to face the loss of everything, including their lives. That's what earned us freedom. So on this Independence Day weekend, on this July 3rd day, I want to ask you in this sermon, are you ready? The founding fathers 
were ready. They'd seen what Britain was up to. They saw what the king was doing. They had a plan. They had an idea of where they were going. They knew what it was going to cost them. Many of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence literally lost everything they had. They lost family. They lost friends. They lost homes. They lost property. They lost possessions to secure for us the freedoms we enjoy today. Thomas Jefferson's life was in danger on more than one occasion. He's a popular character around here. I have a forest named after him. He has several places here in Virginia where he lived and actually moved about and had his livelihood. He was chased out of most of those houses during this war. The houses were burned to the ground. His belongings scattered to the winds. He was prepared to face the loss of all things. Now, fast forward to 2016. And our celebration of Independence Day is typically preparation as well. How many of you are going to have a cookout? Come on, be honest. I want to get your address. I see those hands. Okay. And uh, how many of you are going to have steak? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I'm inviting myself to your house. That's what preachers do. Um, <clears throat> right? If you're going to have a cookout, see, my wife is the cook of my family. You can tell she's a good cook. Just look at me. Um, I never go hungry at our house. But I don't even do the, I don't even do the grilling. I know men, that, that endangers my man, man car. But let me put it like this. She's a better cook than I am, and I'm lazy. So if somebody else wants to man the grill, I'm not going to fight them. Uh, so we'll, but Lisa will get prepared for the cookout. She'll get the stuff, the utensils she needs. She'll get whatever she needs for the grill. She'll get the food. If she's going to cook something she needs to marinate, she'll start marinating it. She'll put it in the bags and add the stuff in there and and get it all shaken up, right? And she'll start planning for the guests if any guests are coming over. She'll get the house in order. She'll get things ready. Uh, my son and my kids and I were responsible for the fireworks on, on these celebrations. Uh, we just went and uh, spent like $3,000 at Walmart. Uh, <coughs> so if, the, if you see a huge fire, Lynchburg direction is probably our house. Um, it's, don't call the fire department. It should be under control. Don't worry about it. Uh, but we, we went and we bought the fire. We'll, we'll, put the, we'll go through the fireworks today. This is our yearly regime and we'll organize them we want to shoot this one first then this one then we want to conclude with of course the largest biggest loudest bang in our box right preparation are we ready today we're going to celebrate the lord's supper and i want to ask you are you ready have you made proper preparations have you bought the proper food have you gotten your house in order my wife and I, every Thanksgiving, like we have a tradition. We invite people from school, students who uh, can't go home for Thanksgiving, or just people in our church who have nowhere to go, to come join us for Thanksgiving. And we'll spend days getting ready for this event. Now, one of those days is to have a pizza party with other friends who make the most delicious pizza in the whole world. And uh, we'll, go, we'll get ready for this event, though, by buying food. And we encourage people to bring something with them that reminds them of Thanksgiving. Now, to, to put this into context, we have a lot of Korean students at our school. And some of these Korean students will come to our Thanksgiving dinners. And they have no idea what Thanksgiving is all about. Right? The turkey, pumpkin pie. You know, now I'm, making, you're all, I'm talking about food. You're all hungry already. It's okay. We're going to have the Lord's Supper in a minute. So you'll get your juice. Um, right? And so one year we had this lady bring pizza. For Thanksgiving, my son was very blessed because he loves pizza, uh, but pizza for Thanksgiving has become a tradition. We prepared the house. We got ready. Passover is an important meal. And the two passages I want to consider today, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the New Testament primarily in Luke chapter 22 first and then 1 Corinthians 11. So you'll want to get your Bibles open to those passages. Um, but the two passages we're going to consider today are dealing with two meals, the Passover meal 
and what Paul calls the Lord's Supper. The Passover meal was a unique meal in Israel. It's still a unique meal among the Jews. My wife and I were reminiscing yesterday. We've been to Israel twice, and we've had the privilege of uh, of having communion, the Lord's Supper, in the garden tomb where supposedly Jesus rose from the dead, which is an amazing experience. And we've been able to walk where Jesus walked. And every year, all the Jews in the world who celebrate Passover, which is pretty much all Orthodox Jews, any Jews who, who claim Judaism as their religion, so every time they celebrate Passover, they end the Passover meal with next year in Jerusalem. Because the goal, the highlight, is to go to Jerusalem for Passover. Well, in our passage in Luke 22, we find Jesus and his disciples in this situation. Let me read for you our passage, and then I want to talk a little bit about the Passover meal. It says on verse 7, we'll start with verse 7. Then the day of unleavened bread came when Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover meal for us that we can eat it. And where do you want us to prepare it, they asked. Listen, he said to them, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him to the house he enters. Tell the owner of that house, the teacher says, where is the guest room? where I can eat the Passover with my disciples. Then he will show you a large unfurnished room upstairs. You make preparations. So they went and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Here we see Jesus telling his disciples to get ready for supper, for the Passover meal. Now, if you're a good Gentile, most of you look to be like me of Gentile stock, so you probably have never really observed a Passover meal, at least not a kosher Passover. The Jews, to prepare for Passover, will literally go through their entire house and get anything out of it that is leavened. They'll clean the house, top to bottom. They'll get, they'll, they have special, modern Jews have special ways to clean the microwave to make sure there's no leaven in it, to clean the ovens to make sure there's no leaven in them. They will scour every corner. They'll get that Cheerio that's been hiding underneath a sofa cushion for months, years, however long, right? They'll get it out because to get ready for Passover means to purify the home. The Passover meal, by the way, is the only festival of the Jews that typically takes place in a home. Not the synagogue, not the temple. It's a home-bound family thing. So the family will go and they'll make this room ready. They'll clean, they'll sweep, they'll mop, they'll take dishes and put them in the dishwasher, and then they'll bring out the special Passover dishes. They're only used on this occasion. It's an important event. Passover lasts a long time. My children can tell you, we've done the uh, Christian version of the Passover Seder. The Seder just means order of worship. We've done the Passover Seder at our house, and about halfway into it, the kids are saying, um, are we done yet? Because it's a long Seder. There's a lot of reading, a lot of stories told, a lot of Bible passages read, but it's the, one of the most important festivals of the Jews. In fact, uh, Josephus once said that of all the festivals, two are most holy the festival of tabernacles and the festival of Passover. Both, ironically, which are testimonies to God delivering the children of Israel and, and, and taking care of them while they're in the wilderness. In Luke 22, Jesus sends two of his disciples to make sure the place is ready. That probably means that Peter and John had the privilege of going into this upper room and making sure it was clean. 
They probably checked the place out. They may have taken a broom and swept some. They might have taken a mop and mopped some. They may have taken some rags and wiped the table down. Who knows? The man may have already had the house prepared. Jesus may have done this in advance. We don't know. But what we know is Jesus told them to go prepare for the Passover. Now, once the house is ready, then you've got to get the food ready. Right? Passover meal had very specific foods in it. Uh, the main items were lamb, the Passover, Paschal lamb, wine. They had uh, romaine lettuce mixed with some um, horseradish, bitter herbs. They have eggs. They'll sometimes have chicken instead of lamb. Um, they would have uh, things like the apples dipped in honey as a reminder of God's provision and God's promise to them of a promised land. And they would have wine. So Peter and John, I want you to get this picture, have been sent by Jesus to go get this room ready. They're putting out the tablecloth. They're getting out the good Passover dishes. They're making sure the chef has got the food going. And they're getting ready for this meal. Now, this meal is significant to the Jews just like the Lord's Supper is significant to us. Tomorrow we celebrate Independence Day, the day America became a free country, uninhibited by any tyranny. We now are masters of our own fate. I know sometimes you step in the voting booth, it doesn't feel that way, but you really are. You have a say-so in the process. This country was founded on freedom, equality, the ability for each individual to determine their own life, their own direction, right? The pursuit of happiness, which, by the way, doesn't mean just what makes you feel giddy. The pursuit of happiness means the pursuit of well-being, the pursuit of shalom in the, in the Jewish concept, the idea of a, a life well-lived. We'll celebrate this Independence Day with food, family, friends, fireworks, right? The trifecta, we'll have it all. And we'll be happy... Maybe you'll take time to read the Declaration of Independence. Maybe you'll pledge allegiance to the flag. I don't know what your family does. But you'll celebrate being an American for this day. The Passover meal was the Independence Day meal for the Jews. Maybe you don't remember what happened in Passover. In the Old Testament, the story is told of God's creation of the universe and creating two people, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve are given specific directions, which, of course, they failed. That's what we call the fall. Sin entered. And then we have from Genesis 3 on a quest for a seed. A seed who would deliver humanity from the oppression of sin that was introduced by Adam and Eve's failure. That all of us, whether we like to admit it or not, have problems with. This seed is discussed from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the end of Genesis. And at the end of the Genesis story, we have a young man. A man named Joseph. You know Joseph's story, the guy with the mini, coat of many colors. His, kid, his family hated him. His brothers hated him, and probably rightfully so. He was the youngest. Um, if, I'm a middle child, so I'm youngest kid. You know. um, they sold him into slavery into Egypt. You know the story, right? He got to Egypt. Things went from bad to worse. He got accused of fooling around with his boss's wife, got thrown in jail, got released from jail, became second in command in the whole kingdom of Egypt, and brought his family in to save them from famine. Woo! Great story, right? End of the story, all the family of Joseph, all of Abraham's kids, Jacob's kids, are in Egypt safe and sound. And in Exodus chapter 1, we read, And there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And this Pharaoh saw the Jews not as friends, but as a means to an end. Slaves. 
labor, and he put them to work. And they worked 400 years as slaves to Egypt. Where is that seed? And I can't only imagine as the Jews are going through this hard time, they, they, they're having to make bricks, they're having to build pyramids, they're having to build these huge monstrosities in honor of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Meanwhile, they're crying out in their hearts, crying out with their voices, Oh Lord, where are you? Oh Lord, where is our deliverer? A guy by the name of Moses is born. If you read Exodus, you know his story, right? Born, put in a boat, floated out in the water, raised by Pharaoh's daughter, prince of Egypt. Moses is the man by whom God brings about Passover for the Jews. And in the story, Moses comes to Pharaoh and he says, God said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, I don't know this God. Who are you talking about? Show me this God. Kind of a lot like our country today, a lot like skeptics today. Show us this God. So Moses threw his, his staff down on the ground. You remember the story? And it turns into a snake. And then the wizards of Pharaoh said, Psh, magic tricks. We got discovered. They threw their sticks down and they became snakes too. With one odd change, Moses' stick ate their sticks. I know which snake I want to be on. You know, side I want to be on the side of the snake that ate them all. And the, the magicians are baffled by this. Then Moses brings these plagues. Honey, you know the story, right? Frogs, darkness, hail, storm with fire. <laughs> Talk about PTSD. I mean, the Egyptians were going through it. And every turn, every plague, Pharaoh would say, okay, 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 let's, let's compromise. Let's make a bargain. Moses, stop this plague. Stop this plague. I get it. Yahweh's God. I get it. Yahweh's God. What do we need to do? And Moses would say, let my people go. And Pharaoh would say, ah, ah, I can't do that. Well, why don't y'all go out in the wilderness a little bit and worship? Only leave your kids here so we have a guarantee you'll come back. No, no, no. No, Moses said, when I leave, I will leave with all of God's people. Let my people go. And Pharaoh, it says, hardened his heart against the Lord, hardened his heart against Moses. And then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And you know the last plague, death angel is sent. I don't know about you, if you're a kid like I was when Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments came out and that green mist came out of the sky, it freaked me out you know, as a kid. <laughs> And every time I see green mist, I kind of, you know, find me some blood to stand under. I just, you know, I'm a little bit worried about that stuff. Right? And the green mist comes in, and people are literally standing in the streets, doing their, going about their business, and they just kind of crumble over. Animals, firstborn of the animals, die. Right? There's a scene in that movie where Joshua comes up to the doorpost that Moses had painted with the blood, and he opens the door. And he stands in the doorway and says, is it sacrilegious to look upon the destruction of Egypt? And Moses says, Joshua, come in and shut the door. That's not for us. Then he comes in this door. The post has been painted. If you look, uh, if you watch the movie or if you look in the Bible, you'll see they painted the doorpost by taking the blood and splashing on the bottom, the top, and to the two sides. Does that look familiar to anybody? Right? And wherever the blood was, the death angel passed over. The next day, Pharaoh's son was dead. Pharaoh arose to great mourning throughout his kingdom, and he called Moses. He said, Moses, get in here. 
And Moses came in and Pharaoh, humbled, bruised, battered, destroyed, said, take your people, get out of Egypt. We don't want you here anymore. And Moses gathered up the children of Israel and, and literally looted the Egyptians as they left Israel. This is the Passover meal. Jesus, a good Jew, is about to celebrate God's deliverance. The two things I want to highlight for you for the rest of our sermon today, two parts of the meal, are the bread and the wine. Because these parts have specific importance to us as Christians today. When Jesus sent the, 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 the disciples, John and Peter, to set up the, the room, he told them to prepare, prepare everything. And it says in verse 14 of Luke 22, When the hour came, he reclined to the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I tell you, from this point on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until God's kingdom comes. And he took bread and gave thanks, and he gave it to them. He broke it and gave it to them. And he said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after the supper and said, This cup is a new covenant established by my blood. It's shed for you. At Passover, the participants, the Jewish participants, would drink wine four times. Sometimes they'd have four cups out, sometimes they'd just use one cup, depending on how rich you were, I guess. But they had four glasses of wine. These four times represent an understanding of Exodus 6, 6 to 7, where God says to the Jews, to Moses, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. And then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. I will bring you out. The first cup represents God's sanctification, setting aside of the children of Israel. We don't have a record of the first cup here in, John, in Luke's gospel at least, or it doesn't seem to me we do, because Jesus never addresses this issue. We have here, the meal has started. Jesus has taken, by the way, what they would do is when the meal would start, they had certain steps that celebrated the same way every year, every time they do Passover. First, the host would offer a prayer, and then he would bless the wine. After he blessed the wine, he would then wash his hands, the host, and he would then drink the first cup of wine after blessing the cup of wine and declaring God's setting aside of this community, this group of people, this family in this room as his people, called out, sanctified, brought out. Then after this, he would take three pieces of matzah bread. Now, I don't know if you know what matzah bread looks like. Our, our uh, communion wafers, our, what we use for communion bread unless you use actually cooked bread, is very similar. It's little crackers. It has holes in it. It has lines on it. And they would take three of the matzah breads and they put them in a napkin together. And sometime after the first cup and before the second cup, the host will take the second matzah bread out of the napkin. Now, there's three pieces of matzah bread. Three, think, if you think of soda crackers, when you used to have to break them off, remember? Think of a sheet. Three sheets. Three. 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 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The second one, the middle one, would be taken out of the napkin and held up to the congregation at that table. And it would be said, this is the bread of affliction. And it would be broken in half. And then one half of that would be stuck back in the napkin. Another half would be taken by someone and hidden away during the rest of the meal. And so then the people would bless the next cup, and they'd partake of the second cup. And this would be the communal cup. The first cup, typically the host drinks, the second cup, the community drinks. And the community would drink from the second cup. And the second cup, the second cup represents deliverance and judgment. Deliverance for those who are called out by God. Judgment for those who are not. The Passover meant harsh times for Egypt and good times for Israel. So the second cup is a reminder to us that God delivers. Remember, we have three pieces of bread. One's broken in half. Half of the bread is hidden away. They're taking of the second cup. Participants declare an invitation to all who are hungry or needy to join the meal. They recite the story of Passover. There's questions that the the young children are required to ask at every Passover meal. Why do we eat these bitter herbs? Why do we eat this unleavened bread? Why do we eat in a hurry? Why are we trying? They would eat, they'd drink the first cup, by the way, leaning to the left. That was to indicate they were getting ready to make a quick exit. That's what it meant. And they would ask these questions, and the story of Passover would be told. It gives specific instructions. After all this, they'd eat the meal. Now, they've had the second cup, mind you, the cup of deliverance, the cup of judgment. They'd eat the meal, and the meal would remind them the egg, the bitter herbs, the chicken, the lamb sacrificed on their behalf. The lamb represents the Paschal lamb that was killed and whose blood was put on the doorpost so the angel would pass them over. And after all this, and the meal is done, the host would arise once again and pray a blessing to God for the meal. And once he blessed the meal, the third cup would be blessed. The third cup represents redemption. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. Redemption is the idea of buying back, purchasing something. Right In the old days of green stamps, some of you are old enough like me to remember green stamps. You save up those stamps, you put them in a book. You take them and you could redeem them for cash prizes or merchandise. My mom got a blender from those stamps. I remember that blender. It was a great blender. We all cried when it broke down. Um, all right. You can redeem coupons. You can redeem all kinds of things. Redemption involves somebody paying a price. And the third cup is a reminder that blood was shed that we might be redeemed. A praise is offered and a prayer is given for the coming of Messiah. Songs are sung and lessons of the law are offered. Sometimes Song of Solomon is read. And then the second piece of bread. It goes along with the third cup. In all the conversation about Passover, the host will say, Oh, we're missing something. We've lost a piece of bread. The children know their cue. They were supposed to have taken the bread and hidden it. So they supposedly have hidden it. The adults will make a a show of pretending to look for it. Oh, where is this bread? Is it under this pillow? Is it here on the couch? Oh, maybe it's over here in the kitchen. And they'd go all over the house looking for it only to come back to the table and say, we can't find the bread. It's lost to us. Oh, woe is us. The bread of affliction is upon us. 
And then the giddy children would go find the bread, bring it back to the host, and receive a ransom for the bread. Usually a gift, maybe some money, maybe some special treats. But the host would give it to them, and he'd hold that piece of bread up. And he says, behold, you ready? What was lost has been found. What was stolen has been redeemed. What was hidden away is now obvious. And then he would break that piece of bread into little bitty pieces and serve it with a third cup of wine. When Jesus breaks the bread in Luke 22, he's taking the hidden matzah and breaking it. This is my body broken for you. The cup, this is my blood shed for you for the remission of sins. Luke mentions only two cups, and I, I think he means the second and the third cup personally. There is some debate among scholars, so let me just say right off the bat that, that the context isn't clear enough. But I do think because the second cup refers to deliverance, and the third cup refers to redemption, and the third cup is typically associated with a broken bread, and Jesus breaks bread and shares it here, that we're on good ground. If you can't see a picture of our triune God and his plan from the beginning of time in the Passover meal, you'll never get the communion supper. You'll never get it. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I sat in Passover meal at Temple Road of Shalom in, uh, um, in Waco, Texas. It was a, a, not a conservative. It was kind of a liberal synagogue. They allowed Gentiles to attend. I had my little yarmulke on. I was sitting at the table with all these Jews because uh, I wanted to learn the Jewish customs. And we were sitting at Passover meal, and this little old lady sitting next to me. And the, the, the priest, the rabbi, is, is breaking the, the matzah, the, the second matzah for the first time, and the kids are giggling and hiding it. And I turned to this woman and I said, why three matzah? We only eat one. And she said, I don't know. Since I was a child, I always wondered why God has three matzah, but we only eat one. She knew as a Ph.D. student at Baylor University studying religion. So guess what she said? What do you think? And I said, well, ma'am, in Christian belief, we think of God as a triune being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son is the second person of that trinity. He's the second matzah bread. And we believe that Jesus, the Son of God, was broken and poured out, his, his body broken, his blood poured out for the redemption of people beyond Israel, for the redemption of all peoples on the earth. And she went, oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? Now, put yourself in the first century. 1776, we have these guys huddled around signing a document they know is going to cost them. They know they're going to lose their lives. They're in danger, and they know they're in danger. They know King George is not going to put up with this. In the first century, we have a group of guys hanging around with this carpenter, and they're not real sure what to make of him. He's just marched into town to palm leaves, and everybody's shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the Messiah. And they're all sitting around at this Passover meal wondering, what in the world is this Jesus guy going to do next? Peter and John have just swept a house. They've just prepared a Passover, and now they're sitting down to eat. And Jesus says, take this bread, my body, given for you. 
And I can only imagine they're looking at the matzah bread in an entirely different way for the first time in their Jewish lives. Whoa, whoa, what's that? I can't help but think they thought back to Isaiah, the suffering servant, bruised, battered, beaten beyond recognition as a human being. It says he was bruised for our iniquities, wounded for our transgressions. Then he takes the cup and says, it's the new covenant. Jeremiah 31.1, a new covenant I will make with you. God says, a covenant not like the old one, but it's a new covenant. I'll put my spirit in you. I'll put my law on your heart, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. And I can only imagine that Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the Jews sitting at Passover, hearing these words and thinking, holy cow, we are seeing it right here, right now. What we've prayed for since Moses, that's it. That's it. They still didn't understand suffering. They still didn't understand the crucifixion. It hadn't happened yet. But their eyes are open and they're beginning to think, this is bigger than us. And like those men in 1776, these men in the first century began to realize this is subversive. This is counter-revolutionary. This is counterculture. This is going to cost us. Fast forward a few decades later, and we have the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. If you don't know anything about Corinth, let me give you a quick history lesson. Corinth was a church that was full of the Spirit and full of itself. I know that sounds like a contradiction, but it's true. These were people that had experienced all these amazing, miraculous, supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit, and yet they were so arrogant as to allow sin in their congregation. They had not prepared their house. Paul writes to them and talks about sexual immorality, talks about lawsuits, talks about uh, divisions, talks about arrogance, talks about pride. And he says, did, they they take sides. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Jesus. And Paul says to them, was Paul crucified for you? Did Apollos die for your sins? Are you out of your cotton picking mind? And in chapter 11, he addresses the Lord's Supper. I want to remind you before we look at this passage, just as the Passover represented God's promise to bring the children of Israel into the promised land, so does Jesus' last supper, the Lord's Supper, promise us deliverance from the bondage of sin and redemption from this world. Yesterday I had the privilege of celebrating a dear friend who died and went to be with the Lord, Dr. Frank Schmidt. Uh, Dr. Schmidt was one of the founding professors at Liberty Seminary. 43 years he taught this institution. Frank was a godly man, a good man, but I couldn't help being just a little bit envious. Frank has entered final redemption. Satan can't touch him. Sin can't bother him. The cancer that racked his body is useless. It can't touch him. Final redemption. The Lord's Supper is a promise of our final redemption. We're promised a future with Christ. Jesus is here stating that he makes a new covenant in Luke 22. Now Paul is going to unpack what that looks like for us. If the Lord's Supper represents the sacrifice of Christ as our Paschal Lamb, then that means the Lord's Supper, this last Passover that Jesus shared, is important for us. In chapter 11, Paul says, of 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, Now for the, in the giving you the following instructions, I do not praise you. This is a pastor's heart. I wish I could come to you and say how great you're doing, but you stink. That's what Paul says. Since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. To begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. 
There must be indeed factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper, because you can't do that with pride. You can't do that with divisions. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper ahead of others. So one person is hungry while another one gets drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Do you look down on the church of God and embarrass those who have nothing? What would I say to you? Should I praise you? No, I will not praise you. What you have to understand is in Corinth, people were coming to church early for the Lord's Supper. They'd have a potluck. Part of the Lord's Supper Passover meal was this huge meal. And the rich people would come early for the potluck, and they'd eat all the food. They'd go through the buffet line three or four times, and they'd load up. And when the poor people showed up who had to work and had to get there late, there was nothing left to eat. There was arrogance, there's pride, there's selfishness involved. And Paul's saying, when you come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and there's arrogance among you, this is dangerous. He said, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. On the night when he took, was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And here's the part where I have to ask you, are you ready? Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. I know we're Baptists. I know we don't believe that this bread and this juice becomes literal blood and literal body. I'm not even pretending that. But Paul's warning us here that when we participate in this meal, when we celebrate the Lord's sacrifice, when we remind ourselves of what Jesus did and we do it with an arrogant heart, with a, with a prideful attitude, with something to show God, we have made ourselves in a dangerous position. So I was asked today to come and lead you in communion. And I don't want to do so if we're not ready. Are you ready? Paul says that we as Christians are the house of God. In, in some of the pastoral letters, he compares Christians to vessels in the temple. The Lord's house, that's us, believers, not this building, us. We need to recognize that this is not just any bread, this is not just unleavened bread and good old grape juice. This represents something far higher, far nobler, far more majestic. As we prepare ourselves to take the Lord's Supper, we need to look backward to the time when Christ died for us. Oh, I wish I had time to tell you the stories of redemption I've seen because of a blood-drenched cross in Jerusalem. I wish I could tell you the agony that our Lord endured so that he could have you as his child, as his bride. When we see the crucifixion at Easter, we always depict it on these high crosses set up on a high mountain where nobody can get close to them, but that's not exactly how the Romans used to do it. The Romans used to set the crosses down, they would be about, oh, a foot and a half, two feet off the ground, just high enough that it was tempting to the person being crucified to think that I could step off this thing and walk away, but just high enough that there's no way they could get off even if they wanted to. And people would come by these men and they would make light of them, they'd make fun of them, they'd poke them with sticks, they'd slap them, they'd make fun of them, they'd be hanging up their without any clothes on, 
suffering in the heat, suffering from crucifixion. As their arms grew tired and they, they slumped, their arms would pull on their lungs and cause their lungs to begin to fill up with fluid because they could not breathe as they slumped down. And if they pushed up, their legs were tied in such a way that it would cause cramps in their calves and in their thigh muscles to where they could only push up for a short amount of time to catch a breath of air. And then they'd slump back down and they'd push back up. It was a horrible, horrible way to die. And this is why sometimes the Roman soldiers didn't think the men were dying fast enough. They'd come with a, a club and they'd break their legs so they couldn't pull up anymore and they would suffocate. This is what our Lord endured. Remember, Jesus has already been beaten and re beyond recognition as a human being. He's bled out. He's probably dehydrated from the blood he's lost, and he's hanging on this cross. And I want to remind you of some of the things Jesus says. He looks down, and he sees his mom standing next to John, the beloved disciple, and he says, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. From that day on, John took care of Jesus' mom. He looks around and he sees the people gambling for his clothes. He sees the rabbis and the, the Jewish leaders cursing, making light of him. He hears the thieves on the two sides of him, one mocking him. And he pushes up ever so painfully. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. At some point in all of this, he gets desperate and he cries out I, I thirst and they go and they take a sponge that's used for cleaning up bathroom utensils basically think the, the scrub you use for your toilet and they dip it in some stuff and they put it up to his mouth and say here have a drink of that and Jesus says it's enough and he pushes up one last time on these aching sore legs they have a nail driven through them and he cries out it is finished. And I don't think he cried it out like a man in pain. I don't think Jesus said, it is finished. I think it was a victorious cry. And it says in John's gospel, at that point he gave up his spirit to the Lord. And he slumped down dead. And you know what that means? Those words, it is finished, this is the past tense. What that means is at that point in time, every sin ever committed, past, present, and future, was covered by the blood of Jesus. Why wouldn't you want in on that? Why wouldn't you want in on that? Whew. We look backwards to what Christ has done. But by the way, he, he didn't stay in the tomb when he died, did he? They buried him. We read that. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea loaned him a place. They buried him in this tomb. And the disciples were heartbroken. Don't be too hard on Peter, James, and John. You and I would have been the same way. Great. Everything we expected just died on the cross with this guy. We're doomed. We're done. Let's quit. On Sunday morning, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. The women go to prepare a corpse. They find an empty tomb. Now, just picture that. Maybe Independence Day, maybe Memorial Day, maybe whenever you go to visit loved ones or those who served our country in the military, maybe when you go to the tombs there and you maybe put an American flag or put some flowers or whatever you do to honor your loved ones. I don't know. Imagine going there and the thing's open and there is no body. There's no casket. Then you ask around and the person you start asking to all of a sudden looks really, really familiar to you. resurrection we can look forward to what God is doing because Jesus resurrection promises a future tense for us 
We finally need to look inward and look outward. Look inward to prepare our own hearts for this meal and look outward to see how we're treating others. Do we, do we take this seriously, ladies and gentlemen? It's, it's time for us to close. It's time for us to end. I, I, I don't know if I've gotten a point across to you I want you to get. In Luke 22, Jesus, in anticipation, in anticipating of the greatest suffering that any human ever endured, an innocent dying for the guilty, a pure, perfect, holy man taking the sin of the universe, the sin of the universe, not just your sin, not just my sin, not just the sins of your family, not just the sins of your next-door neighbor, not just the sins of this church, not just the sins of all the churches in this city, not just the sins of all of Rocky Mount, not just the sins of all of Virginia, not just the sins of all 50 contiguous United States, not just the sins of Canada and Mexico and Europe, and not just the sins of India, not just the sins of China, not just the sins of Japan, every sin ever committed since Adam and Eve first ate the fruit till the day Jesus returns he became sin when we break that bread and we drink that juice that wine we're reminding ourselves that a price had to be paid for our deliverance a price had to be paid for our freedom are you ready as we close let's take a few minutes to examine ourselves what leaven what junk needs to be cleaned out of our houses before we participate in this supper? What sins need to be confessed? What actions need to be made right? Where do we need to repent? Maybe, maybe we need to make things right with a brother or sister. Maybe we need to ask forgiveness. Maybe we just simply need to get before the Lord and say, God, I'm simply not worthy of this great sacrifice. I'm going to open up the altar here in a moment. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. During this hymn of invitation, let's make sure we're clean. What kind of vessels are we? What needs purification? Before we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ by partaking in this meal, let's be sure that we're cleansed. Let's make sure our relationship with him is pure and our relationships with each other are right. If you're sitting here today, and there may be someone, who thinks this is crazy, a man on a cross bodies coming out of the grave let me just tell you the gift that we're about to partake in is for you 1 John 1 9 says if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness if you've never had the unbelievable redeeming experience of your Christian independence day what better day than on the day you take the Lord's Supper this table is open to all the sacrifice that made this possible is open to all. If you do not know Jesus today, it's a simple procedure. You come to him and you acknowledge that. You tell him you're wrong, specifically, name the sin, and then you tell him you repent. That means you don't want to do it anymore. You want to do something different. And you make him boss. You make him in charge. He becomes the king. He's now the guy that you answer to. And if you'll do that in simple, sincere faith, he will deliver you. I close with this before we pray. God says, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. And I will make you my people. As we participate today in the Lord's Supper, as we participate in a moment of prayer and repentance, let's remember, God does these things. 
Father, I stand before you an unclean man. Leaven is in my house. And Lord, I pray that you would come in with your spirit. Breathe a fresh breath of cleanness and holiness. Lord, I pray for all of us in this room as we take the next few minutes before we participate in this Lord's Supper, as we make our hearts ready before we take this meal. Remind us, Lord, in this time of things we need to make right, not just with you, but with anyone else whom we may have wronged. Father, for that person today that has been harboring bitterness and anger because the things that have happened to them should never happen to any human being, Lord, I agree with them. It should never happen. But help them, Lord, today to let go of that bitterness. The person who wants to be unforgiving because they receive the right to judge this person and to be their judge, jury, and convictor, Lord, remind us that you alone are judge. Vengeance is yours, not ours. Lord, to the person who doesn't know you today, Lord, I pray your spirit would convict that today you would move in such a way that this would be their Independence Day, that they'd be able to look back at July 3rd, 2016, and say, on that day, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have provided so great salvation. May we be worthy of your calling. We pray in Jesus' name.